15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Here we go again. Hello and welcome to the Space Nuts podcast, episode 210. Uh, I'm Andrew Dunkley, your host, and with me as always is the better half of the Space Nuts podcast, Professor Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Uh, hi. hi, Andrew. Yep, um, I'm not sure I'm the better half, but I, I, I make my contribution. <laughs> you, well, you, you you tell people what they want to hear, which is more than I can do. I just I'm just the pretty face. Oh, really? Um, well, you can't see him anymore because we don't do this uh, on, on the old platform, so you can't see how stunning I well, turn out. So something's changed, has it? <laughs> no, not really. It's just, you know. All right, sorry about Talking that. garbage. Yeah. No, it's all right. Um, now, coming up, uh, we're going to talk. This is a really interesting story, an asteroid moon. This is a moon that's going around an asteroid. Uh, they've had to give it a name, and they've given it a name for a very odd reason. We will explain very, very soon. Uh, there's also a new exoplanet that you might have read about in the news on the weekend. This one was uh, recently discovered. It is unique. It's unlike any other exoplanet that's been found so far. Uh, so what's unique about it? Well, we're going to tell you. And we're going to uh, answer some questions from the audience. John Carter wants to know if it's possible to put a number on the things in space, uh, how many stars, how many planets, how many galaxies, to the nearest point zero one. Uh, we'll um, try and answer that. And Ben Harper has um, uh, messaged us to say, can a black hole form without a star? That is a fascinating question, Ben, and uh, we don't know, so we're not going to do it. Uh, but that's, we will. But uh, let's start with this uh, this asteroid moon. Now, this Fred is uh, there's an asteroid out there. It's got a name. It's going somewhere. Uh, it's going to pass near Earth, and it's got a moon that's orbiting the asteroid. Now, the moon is nameless, but they've got to give it a name because of what they're going to do next. Uh, indeed, uh, exactly as you've said, this is an extraordinary story. So it all comes back to the idea of the fact that we expect uh, the Earth to be uh, potentially impacted by asteroids. It's been impacted by asteroids throughout its whole history. Uh, and we now have the technology to, to try and forecast when that might happen with all these telescopes that are, uh, you know, like PANSTARS and uh, other telescopes which are surveying the sky for near-Earth objects. Uh, but the question is always, OK, so you find something that's going to hit the Earth in 30 years, what do you do about it? And the glib answer is, well, we deflect it slightly, uh, we provide an acceleration to it, um, either by, you know, knocking it, it slightly with something or putting putting a rocket motor on it or whatever uh, and 30 years you later build a giant you build a giant cricket bat a cricket bat and launch it into space yep. um, and I say cricket bat because I know they play baseball in America but you'd probably miss with a baseball bat you <laughs> were <laughs> <laughs> cricket bat's better chance yeah so whatever you know there's there's um, a dozen technologies that you could use to deflect a uh, an asteroid, we believe, and um, then uh, you know the, the orbit changes sufficiently that it misses the Earth. That's the idea. That's the whole uh, principle of, of um, what you might call civil defence, as far as Earth asteroids are concerned, or mm. actually more like 
quasi-military defence, I guess it is, because you're going to basically move something. All right, so uh, how do you test this? Well, uh, we've not really been able to test it to date, but there is a NASA mission uh, which will launch in July next year, July 2021. So we're just a year out from the launch of this. It is called DART, which is a really nice acronym for Double Asteroid Redirection Test. And that... Oh, they've done well. Tells you the story. Yeah, it's great. Yes. It's a really good one. Um, So um, that in itself tells you the story as well, because the the object which is going to be, uh, be moved is the moon of an asteroid... Uh, whose number I think is 65803, just to give you something in there. Um, and it, so the, 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 this is a, a double asteroid, effectively. And there are quite a number of examples of that, uh, where you've got a, a, a larger asteroid with a smaller one going around it. So in this case, we've got an, an asteroid which is a substantial size, uh, measured, I think, in kilometres, but it has this moon whose whose diameter is not that well known because it's so far away, uh, but it is um, in the order of, I think it's 100, if I remember rightly, about 160 metres uh, mm. in diameter. So uh, the idea is that DART will launch, as I said, next year, head off to, uh, to this uh, pair of asteroids and clout the smaller one. It's going to basically crash land into it a bit more than a year later <clears throat> september 2022 um its distance will be uh, something like 11 million kilometers from earth which is relatively local in fact this is you know this is a a, a fairly nearby asteroid although the, the the pair of asteroids we're talking about apparently uh, could never threaten the earth just because their orbits are not the orbit is not like that but um Okay, so you hit the you hit the moon, and what that is expected to do is to change the orbit of the moon around its parent asteroid, which I haven't told you. Sorry, it's called Didymos. Didymos. Um, oh, okay. D i d y m o s. That's the name of the the main asteroid. Uh, so uh, you, um, basically, you 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 change the orbit of the moon around its parent body, Didymos, and that is a much easier change to detect and measure than, you know, taking a single asteroid and giving it a clout to try and move it into a slightly different orbit around the sun because you you don't know that you've managed to do that for years probably until you can Mm. accurately measure the change in its orbit. If you go for a double asteroid, it's a very clever idea, go for a double asteroid uh, and hit the smaller one, then you'll be able to measure the change in its orbit almost immediately. So you know exactly whether you've had any effect, whether it has been a success. Uh, Really very, very uh, neat science. The orbit of... um, Sorry, go on. Go they're on. not trying. They're not trying to knock the the small one out of the orbit of no. the big one. They're just trying to alter its orbit so it alters the direction of the bigger asteroid. No, it's not even that, Andrew. Oh. It's 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 only altering the orbit of the moon around the parent asteroid. And, oh, okay. And, and it's and the thi- so the orbit of of the moon 
Uh, we haven't got to the naming yet, but we will in a minute. <laughs> the orbit of, of Moon around Didymos is once every 12 hours. So um, the, the expectation is that with the DART spacecraft, uh, you can, you'll probably put a change in the orbital period. It'll tighten up um, and uh, it'll be, be reduced by 10 to 20 minutes. And that is very easy to observe. So you're not you're not affecting the <clears throat> excuse me the parent body at all. You're just affecting the orbit of the moon around it. <clears throat> so the moon will have a, a slightly faster orbit as a consequence of the impact. Yeah, and and it's that that you can measure. So you you you, you know how much energy you've put into it with this spacecraft. <clears throat> excuse me, I've got the the typical morning frog frog in the throat here. You know how much energy mm. you've put into it, and then you can measure what its effect is, and you can do that actually immediately you'll see a change in its orbit because this moon is, uh, as I said, it's so small. It's, it's a, a hundred, as I mentioned, 160 metres across. Uh, and it is a fantastic idea. Um, there is a plan then for the, uh, for the European Space Agency uh, to send a probe actually to the moon uh, uh, that that has been whose orbit has been changed in 2024 to make sure that that the change in orbit is permanent. <clears throat> That's the ah idea, uh, to make observations okay. that that confirm it. So so why did they have to give it a name? Aha, uh, because uh, they had to give it a name just so that they knew. You know, you can't keep saying it's the moon of Didymos. Um, although uh, it did have a nickname, which was the Diddy Moon uh, for a while, which kind of goes back to a comedian who used to work in uh, in the UK when I was a youngster. Who uh, his name was Ken Dodd, and he invented the Diddy Men. And the Diddy Men, everybody was mad on the Diddy Men. Uh, so the Diddy Moon uh, is the nickname for it, but that's not a very nice name for it. Um, so. You do need to have something that you're going to talk about when you're clouting it with an astro with a with a rocket, and that's why yeah. the International Astronomical Union has uh, been engaged because they're the only body in the world that can name uh, objects in space, uh, and so they uh, were approached and said, "Yes, we'll give it a name," and it is it is being called uh, Dimorphos or Dimorphos, Ooh. probably uh, D I M O R P H O S. And it's a Greek word meaning having two forms. And the two forms are the orbit that it had to start with and the orbit it will have after it's been knocked askew uh, by <clears throat> the spacecraft dart. So it's really, you know, it's a really interesting idea. So uh, dimorphos or dimorphos, depending on how you pronounce it, is something that will be very much in the news uh, from the middle of next year until uh, late the following year because we... You know, we are to some extent staking our abilities to to change the orbits of asteroids on this experiment. Um, so it mm. could be very important for the future of uh, the future of our planet. You know, protecting us from uh, uh, incoming asteroids, uh, near Earth asteroids that might that might have a disastrous effect on the Earth. Uh, if we can shift their orbits, and this is an, the first experiment to determine that, if we can do that. Uh, then we're in better shape than we were before. Yes, indeed. Do we? I, I'm sure they've done their calculations, but do we know how hard they're going to hit it? 
Uh, no, I, I don't know offhand, but but yes, you're absolutely right. The the, the impact velocity will be extremely well known. Um, it's I, I imagine they're going to hit it at like thousands of kilometres an hour or something to that effect. I suspect. I'm not sure about this, but reading between the lines, uh, I believe that they will basically there won't be any slowing down to going to orbit around this thing. They'll just uh, on, on its slam. incoming traje- trajectory from Earth, they'll just slam straight into it. Yeah, because that will give them the highest the highest velocity impact. Mm. Yeah. Gosh, okay, so it'll be a, a um, yeah. There won't be any bells and whistles on this spacecraft, I imagine. Um, <laughs> that's right. You don't you don't need any extras. Just just a battering ram at one end and a rocket at the other. Yeah. with a guidance system. Yeah, I don't know what its mass is, um, but we can follow up on that. That's uh, that'll be easy to find out. It, yeah, it, but it's yes. a great it's a great story, isn't it? That, that we've got a new moon that's going to be moved. <clears throat> yes. Well, it'll be interesting to uh, to see how it turns out. I hope they don't miss. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but but you know, even if they did, it would teach them something. That's that's what this is all about. Uh, if they succeed, great. If they don't, then they'll go. Okay, we need to reanalyze the way we're doing this so that when we have to do it for real, we don't miss. I I don't think they will miss. But I'm just throwing it up there because that's, you know, that's the way I am. It is, yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, you know, if you can if you can fly by something like Arakoth, uh, six billion kilometres away, uh, and pass it within the exact distance that you predict and take all the photographs, that's what we used to call uh, Ultima Thule, um, I think you can do something only 11 million kilometres away. It's on our doorstep, really. Yeah. Easy, 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 easy peasy, Andrew. Easy peasy. Like shelling peas. Yeah, exactly. Mm. All right. Uh, well, that's an, uh, a story we'll be very keen to follow up in about a year or so. Yeah. You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and, of course, Professor Fred Watson. Space Nuts. As always, I want to send a special shout-out to our patrons who support us financially. Uh, some have mortgaged their penthouses in New York to just uh, send us a few dollars so that we can stay um, operational. It's actually not quite that expensive. Um, Fred's salary is, but I, I get the change. But uh, if, if you would like to support us financially, uh, it's an option. It's not something we ever would tell you to do. Uh, we can only throw the idea up there, and it's, it's certainly your choice. I mean, you can still get the podcast without having to do it. But some people approached us and said, we'd like to um, give a little bit back because we love what you do, and we love that you love what we do. Uh, but And there are a couple of options these days. You can go to Supercast. And you can uh, set up a, a, a bundle service, uh, depending on what sort of combination of things you want to uh, listen to. You can have Space Nuts and Space Time or Space Nuts and Dark Sky projects uh, or conversations and, and so on. There are all sorts of options. That's at bytesnetwork.supercast.tech. You can also do it through Patreon. And, uh, Fred, we've had a few more people sign up to Patreon this week, so uh, welcome aboard. And uh, that's at patreon.com slash space nuts if you would like to support us that way. And, of course, uh, the benefit of being a patron is you get bonus material and we will be providing some bonus content this week. So that's all coming up. And thank you for being a patron in whatever form you choose. Now, Fred, let's uh, move on to this, um, this really 
interesting discovery. This is an exoplanet. We've had quite a few exoplanets to talk about lately, but this one is not very far from Earth, but it's unique. They have never seen one like it before. I know we're in the early phases of exoplanet discovery and we're finding more and more and the numbers are getting up into the well up into the thousands now, but this one is one that isn't like any other that's ever been seen so far, and it has been suggested that it may well be a, a unique discovery. So what have we got? Yeah, we, um, I, I bet it's not unique uh, in terms of it, you know the existence of these things outside uh, in the wider universe, but as, as you're up... I, I knew you would say that. <laughs> you're absolutely right. It is, it is uh, unique to our knowledge. There you are. That's the way to put it. Uh, yeah, that's. And that's you said good. you did say it's a unique discovery, and I think that's absolutely right. I, I, I should explain, Andrew, that I'm very, um, I'm, I'm always very careful with the word unique because I once got picked up on a radio show by somebody who, uh, I, I, I said that something was very unique, and I got hammered by this listener who said you cannot, oh, you cannot quantify. It would have been the ABC for sure. It would. It was the ABC. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't quantify the word unique. You're either unique or you're not, and you can't put a Exactly, yeah. yeah. So there you go. So uh, we, we are agreed, I think, that this is a unique discovery, but it might not be unique in the universe. So having got that point sorted out, let's move on to this very exciting discovery. Uh, it is, yeah, relatively nearby, 730 light years away. This is a sun-like star, um, so you would expect, you know, maybe a solar system-like solar system around it, but uh, not at all. Uh, what was discovered, and again, this is a discovery that comes from TESS, the uh, Terrestrial Exoplanet Survey Satellite or spacecraft. Uh, TESS is, um, did I, what did I say? Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. I can't remember what I said, but I'm sure that wasn't it. Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, uh, which looks for the dips in the intensity of stars uh, as a planet passes in front of them. And so uh, this particular object, which uh, actually rejoices in the name of TOI-849b, TOI Tess Object of Interest. Um, so it was um, some time ago that I think they found this. Um, you, you're quite right. We're, our numbers are well up in the thousands now. It passed 4,000. I think it was about a year last March when we passed 4,000. So it's well above that now. Anyway, <clears throat> TOI-849b, um, surprise people because it's a relatively large object. Uh, it's an easy one to observe because it goes around its parent star once every 18 hours. That's its year, once every wow. 18 hours. And so, um, you know, you don't need to observe over a very long period of time to, ca to, to catch many transits of the planet in front of its star, and that means you can refine its you know refine its orbit very well you can get a really good uh, idea of its diameter and it, it's basically um a, a neptune sized object in its in its diameter um, which would automatically make you think gas giant that's right yes exactly uh, so um and, and neptune sized objects are are interesting but um this is even more interesting because it's right near the uh, the, the parent star. Uh, normally, you don't find Neptune-sized objects right next door to the parent star. You find sometimes you find um, you know hot Jupiters, uh, things that are bigger than Neptune. 
but not anything of this size. So that already made it interesting. But then the, the, the real clincher was when the second part of the research was carried out, because as you know, um, if you've got a, a planet that's going around a star it, and you're looking at it in the orbital plane, which you have to be for it to pass in front of the parent star and, and, and dim the light, it also makes uh, finding its mass easier because you can measure the, the, the Doppler wobble of the parent star. You can actually look at the way the planet is pulling its parent star uh, out of place uh, using a spectrograph that breaks up the light uh, into the rainbow colours and lets you see the barcode of information, which includes information on velocity, what we call the radial velocity. So uh, astronomers did that. They measured the amount of wobble that the star was participating in because of the, the planet orbiting around it. And having done that, they could determine the mass of the planet. And that was the big surprise. Uh, because it is 39.1 times the mass of the Earth. And that, um, when you combine it with its known diameter from the, the transit method, uh, basically gives you uh, a density which is very similar to the Earth's density. It's 5.2 grams per cubic centimetre. Uh, so, so they're saying this is a rocky planet. Yeah, exactly. It's a rocky planet. It's something like as big as a gas giant. But as big as a, a nice, yes, one of the smaller gas giants. So 2.3 wow. times the mass of Neptune, uh, a little smaller diameter than Neptune, and a density the same as the Earth. And that is a puzzle. Um, it's, it's not the most massive planet that's been discovered, but it's the most massive for its size, which means it's very dense. So it's a rocky planet. Mm. And th that is where, you know, the puzzle starts there. Um, it's... It's near its parent star. Um, the, the comment that one of the uh, researchers has made is that we don't normally see planets with this mass at these short orbital periods. And the short orbital period tells you it's close to its parent star. Um, and that uh, leads to the suspicion that it's basically what we're seeing is the, is the naked core of a gas giant uh, planet. So it's a it's a gas planet, kind of like Jupiter, but whose atmosphere has been stripped off. And it may be just where it, you know, where it is in its solar system that has done that, because the surface temperature is estimated to be 1,530 degrees Celsius, which translates to 2,780 degrees Fahrenheit. It's very hot because wow. it's so close to yeah. its parent star. And, and so the, the thinking is that that has caused the atmosphere to evaporate, um, and essentially, uh, you, you know, become this naked uh, gas giant core. Um, apparently, when you do the calculations, uh, the, the loss of atmosphere that you would get from that heating is it's not enough to account for the fact that this has got no atmosphere at all. So um, mm. people are suggesting that maybe uh, other events have, uh, played a part, maybe collisions uh, with other large bodies in that solar system, which we haven't found. Or um, one one is another interesting suggestion that it maybe started forming as a gas giant, but something 
prevented that from carrying on. Uh, maybe there wasn't enough gas left in the in the disk, the protoplanetary disk around the star, uh, or maybe there was a gap in the disk where something else had already formed, where there wasn't much gas to to, to become an atmosphere, uh, and so the you know the, the, the sort of sort of like you, your partner taking your blanket in the middle of the night, so it missed out. Uh, it's a very good analogy. Andrew, uh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. If your blanket's gone, you can't form an atmosphere around yourself, and that's basically mm. what may have happened. So there, there are all these theories, um, and I think what's happening now is that uh, astronomers are going to try and make more detailed observations of this object, uh, TOI 849b, to try and find out one way or the other, whether it's a gas giant that's been stripped of its atmosphere or a, gas, a failed gas giant, one that never got its atmosphere. Very, very interesting. Um, uh, and there's a nice quote, actually, from uh, the, the lead author. Um, it's a first telling us that planets like this exist and can be found. We have the opportunity to look at the core of a planet in a way that we can't do in our own solar system. There are still big open questions about the nature of Jupiter's core, for example. So strange and unusual exoplanets like this give a window into planet formation that we have no other way to explore. Very nice quote. Yeah, um, and indeed. And, and yes, as, as he said, we've always wondered about what's going on down in the core of Jupiter and even Neptune and, and Saturn. This may, this may be not the total answer, but it give us, gives us a, maybe some better ideas if we study it as to what's happening in the gas giants in our solar system. Exactly. That's exactly right. Mm. That's how we do it. We look at other solar systems to find out what's happening in ours. It's paradoxical, really, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. Why not? I mean, it, it's uh, the first of its kind to be found. As you say, there are probably others out there, but this is the, this is the first one. So at the present time, it is unique. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Uh, in, in the future, it may not be very new, unique. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get letters. People are writing. I know, I know, I know. Yes. Hmm. All right. Uh, that's a that's a fascinating one. All right. Well, we'll hopefully there'll be more to learn, and uh, maybe they'll tell us some more down the track. This is the Space Nuts podcast. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Zero G, and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Now, as I've mentioned many, many times, we have a new URL so that it's easy to find us uh, and listen, spacenutspodcast.com. Now, you'll probably notice as soon as you type that into your browser and press enter, it changes the, um, <laughs> changes the URL immediately. That is completely normal. <laughs> so uh, just for the sake of simplicity at your end, Space Nut. Uh, spacenutspodcast.com will get you to uh, our uh, bytes.com uh, site, uh, which is, yeah, uh, where the messy URL will pop up. But don't worry about that. That's our problem. Once you get there, uh, it's um, all wide open. All the episodes are there listed in chronological order. Uh, and you can read the blog. You can look, uh, read the Astronomy Daily, which uh, just update stories all the time about uh, astronomical and space science news. There's the shop, there's the bookshop. You can subscribe to our service through the page uh, and you can click on the AMA uh, tab, which I'm just about to do, and voila, be a part of the show. And if you've got a device that's got a microphone in it, you can just hit the start recording button and wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, tell us who you are 
and ask us your question. That's as easy as it gets. So you can send us audio questions via our website, spacenutspodcast.com. Now, Fred, uh, it is question time, and we've got a couple of uh, questions to go through. The first one is from John Carter of Mars. Now, (laughs) I called him that before. I'm sure we've heard from John previously. Hi, Fred and Andrew. Wasn't sure if this question has been asked before, uh, uh, for I listen to all your podcasts uh, and life gets in the way on a miss parts. Well, yes, that's that's true. I, I miss them too. Uh, I often hear there are 100 billion galaxies or 300 or whatever uh, visible galaxies. Would it be fair to say you can't put a number on it uh, for it must uh, go on for an eternity? Uh, for it to end doesn't seem possible for if there's a barrier or wall of some description, there has to be something on the other side of that wall or barrier. Even if there's nothing, it's still something. John Carter. It's more of a statement, but it's a, it's a, an interesting uh, analysis to make. Uh, can you put an absolute number statistically on the number of stars, the number of planets, the number of galaxies, the number of black holes, the number of whatever in the universe? And I would think... Generally speaking, no, but you could have a pretty good guess. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So um, y- you can put a number on what's in the observable universe, certainly as far as things like galaxies are concerned, because this is the, the conundrum. Um, we think that the universe is very big. And in fact, exactly as John says, it may be infinite. It may go on and on for eternity. Uh, you know, in other words, there's no there's no boundary to it. Uh, that is is a possibility. However, there is only a limited amount of it that we can see, and that's because there are. It's very like being on the ocean. You know, you've got a you've got a horizon around you, uh, and you can see to the horizon, and you can see everything as far as the horizon, but you know that there's a lot beyond the horizon that you're not seeing. And that's basically the way it works with the universe. I mean, the the obvious horizon is that we look back so far in time that we're seeing the flash of the Big Bang. So we're kind of in a bubble uh, of visibility, uh, which is bounded by a look back time corresponding to the flash of the Big Bang. And you can't see any further than that, because that is looking back to a time when the universe was blindingly bright. So that's just one example of of a horizon that you can't penetrate, at least not with electromagnetic radiation. You might be able to penetrate that with um, gravitational waves. That's something we've spoken about from time to time. So what you can say is, okay, there's a a horizon beyond which we can't see. Uh, What's the number of galaxies, for example, within that horizon? And the answer is, uh, well, the answer comes from measurements made mostly with the Hubble telescope, which is in many regards, at least at the moment, the most sensitive detector we have for ga- galaxies at very great distances. And if you, what you can do is you can look at an area of sky with the Hubble, you count the number of galaxies <coughs> in that area of sky, <coughs> excuse me, uh, and um, then you, 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 know, you, you extrapolate that then to the whole sky. And the number comes out to be about 2 trillion, 2,000 billion galaxies, uh, which are in what we would call the observable universe. But beyond, wow. 
beyond the observable universe, the, the bits that we can't see, it's kind of anybody's guess. Um, and, uh, you know, as I said, we really don't know how, how far the, the universe extends for. So it is, uh, this is stuff very much at the limits of knowledge. We can get an idea from the, uh, the Big Bang, the flash of the Big Bang, when, when we look at what's called the cosmic microwave background radiation, this microwave hiss across the whole sky. Uh, looking at the details of that lets you work out um, the, the fractions of different kind of components that, that the universe has. So you can say it's uh, something like, you know, 75% uh, dark energy, 20% dark matter, 5% normal matter, very, very roughly. And th that actually gave rise to the story we had a, a few weeks ago, where the, the amount of normal matter that was being predicted uh, in within the universe was found not to be enough, but a discovery was made using fast radio bursts that it actually is the, the rarefied gas between the, you know, between the galaxies. So you can work out those proportions, but it's a lot harder to, to give an absolute number on the total content of the universe because of mm. the horizons that I've explained. They're really interesting. And, yeah, and, and that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, we, we cannot see the edge of the universe we know it's expanding and it's expanding we think uniformly and it's getting faster we don't know what's driving that uh is there something beyond the edge of the universe if there is indeed an edge of the universe it's it, it, that, that that's all pure speculation i mean it's it's I, I don't know if we'll ever be in a position one day to figure it out because the more we sit and wonder the further away it gets <laughs> And it's moving at a rate of knots. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> As always. Mm. Yes, but uh, we thank you for your question, John. Uh, we know how many uh, are in the uh, uh, visible universe, uh, but uh, who knows what's beyond that. Um, now let's move on to a question from Ben Harper. Hi, guys. Ben from Perth here. Love the show. Uh, I have another question about black holes uh, I know another one, but uh, it's one that no one seems to talk about. I was watching a documentary about supermassive black holes at the centre of galaxies, and they were explaining that quasars in the very early universe were, in fact, supermassive black holes that were very active. But at this stage in the universe, there had not been enough time for a star to form a black hole um, then that uh, black holes uh, to grow into supermassive black holes. They then started talking about the idea of direct collapse black holes, a gas cloud so big that when it collapses, it goes straight past forming a star and then turns into a supermassive black hole. I was wondering why no one talks about direct collapse black holes. Is the idea not well known or is it not very well accepted by the scientific community. Thank you, guys. Love the podcast. Love the question, Ben. Yeah. Um, Fred and I had a quick chat about it before we started the, the show, and, um, yeah, we both agreed that uh, it has not been asked of us before, and I can't say that I'd heard of it before, but I'm sure Fred has. Um, it, it is, yeah, it's it's a, something that, that isn't well talked about. Um, uh, Ben's absolutely right. Uh, I think it is probably fair, rather than saying it's not very well accepted, not well known or not well accepted by the scientific community, I think it's fair to say uh, that it's fairly speculative still at the, at the moment, that um, there really isn't 
quite enough information to put this together. Uh, so the story is, Andrew, that exactly as Ben says, that uh, yes, we see quasars in the early universe, uh, quasars, highly energetic cores of uh, young galaxies, uh, and the energy source is a supermassive black hole at the centre of these things, which is accreting material uh, in a dramatic rate, and as it does that, it spits out all this all this energy. Um, and so the conundrum is, you know, you need a, a, maybe a million or a billion solar masses to do this, to make a quasar. <clears throat> but we see these quasars when the universe was very, very young. And the current best theory for how you make supermassive black holes is you start off with a small one and it gradually subsumes other black holes to build over time into a supermassive black hole, a big one. And so the conundrum is that there hasn't been enough time in the history of the universe at the, at the epoch that these quasars are operating for that process to happen. The quasars are evidence of supermassive holes too soon in the, in the universe for the normal accretion process to be working. And so the idea of a direct collapse gas cloud has been proposed. Uh, and in fact, there's, some, there's actually quite a lot of work on it uh, out there. Dating back about two and a half years, there was a, 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 a theoretical study published in, uh, in March 2017, um, which suggests a mechanism uh, that lets you produce uh, direct collapse black holes. So the problem is that if you've got a, a gas cloud, an enormous gas cloud, it will tend to fragment into smaller clumps. And then each of those clumps will collapse to form a star. So you've got this kind of clumping process, um, which would have to be absent in a direct collapse black hole. Uh, it would have to essentially be um, fairly homogeneous throughout and simply collapse what's being called a monolithic collapse of a huge amount of gas into that single structure uh, and gravity just pulls it in. And the theory shows that you could get maybe million solar mass black holes by this method if you could stop mm -hmm. the thing fragmenting. And so the, uh, the, the theory... Um, suggests a mechanism for that, which is that if you've got, uh, if you have another cloud of gas next to the one that you're talking about, another gas cloud that behaves normally and collapses its, uh, it fragments its, its contents into smaller clumps, which then collapse into stars. Those stars themselves emit huge amounts of radiation because they are themselves massive stars. They're 100 times the mass of the sun. And so there's a whole lot of ultraviolet light. Radiation comes out of that normally forming galaxy, basically, these stars forming in the in the gas cloud and the suggestion is that if if the other one the direct collapse one is near enough to the normal one then the radiation coming from the normal one will actually inhibit the the fragmentation of the big one and it will 
basically just collapse uh, into a single supermassive black hole. That's uh, one of the possible theories. Uh, it's very, very interesting stuff. And, you know, Ben's absolutely right. It's not talked about enough. It's amazing that we've been rattling on for three years or four years, however many, however many it is. And we've never covered direct collapse black holes. So thank you very mm. much for raising it. And we will put it on our radar. And um, if there is new research on it, we'll, we'll certainly bring it up. Yeah. Uh, I, I suppose the, the fact that it's pure theory is um, a reason why it, it sort of doesn't get a lot of uh, airtime, to use the radio terminology. But um, uh, if the time comes when su such a situation is discovered, it would be, it would be a huge find, I would yeah, imagine. Well, that's right. And, and in fact, there are, there are candidates for that having happened, um, basically. Okay. Uh, clouds of gas that are radiating and suddenly disappear. Uh, there's, there's, I think, at least two examples of that. Um, and one of them was reported only a couple of weeks ago. And I suspect these two stories are linked, you know, that um, that if, if you have... It was, it was uh, being um, touted as a disappearing star, a star that had essentially probably collapsed to a black hole without uh, going through a supernova explosion, which is a bit like the idea of a direct, um, a direct collapse, uh, 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 um, su uh, supermassive black holes. <laughs> I'm getting my words tangled up here. Uh, that story came mm. from the European Southern Observatory about a fortnight ago. Uh, and it may, it's, I think it's on a smaller scale, but it may be the same sort of process that if you've got um, a large cloud of gas, um, under unusual conditions, you can get this collapse down to a black hole without it going through the normal processes of black hole creation. It's fantastic stuff. Oh, indeed. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Ben. Great question. Really, uh, really worth investigating. And you, you never know, we might hear more about it in the not too distant future, especially if they can identify uh, with some certainty that, yes, that black hole happened this way. Yep. We will watch and wait and hope. Uh, thank you, Ben. Thank you to everyone who uh, sends us questions. We certainly encourage those, whether you send an audio question via the website or if you just want to message us through Facebook or email us through our website, spacenutspodcast.com. Uh, we're going to have to wrap it up, Fred. Um, when we talk to you again, you will be partially mechanical. I will. I'll be the bionic knee person, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> He's getting a new knee. Is it your left or your right? It's the left one. We, the left one. Yes. Okay. The left knee. He's He's got a dicky knee and he needs a new one. <laughs> it's been bone on bone for about three or four years, Andrew, so it's kind oh. of... And, uh, that explains the crunching noise as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you thought it was bits of paper rattling on the microphone. No, it's the crunching knee. <laughs> uh, do you, uh, see, they they did try to tell you in school, sit still, Fred. You just didn't listen. No, I didn't listen. That's right. Mm -hmm. Too busy gazing at the stars. Fred, thank you. We'll catch you real soon. Sounds good, Andrew, and all the very best to you too. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at the Space Nuts podcast. Don't forget uh, to uh, follow us on your favourite uh, social media platform. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on YouTube, we're on Instagram. And uh, on Facebook, you can even join the Space Nuts podcast group, which is basically 
uh, fans of the Space Nut po- Nuts podcast who get together to talk to each other. So uh, look for that as well, Space Nuts podcast group, uh, or follow us on any of your favourite space uh, uh, social media platforms. Uh, and we've got some bonus material coming up for you uh, as well if you're a, a patron. That will be hitting the respective uh, patron and Supercast platforms real soon. Uh, until next time, thanks for joining us on this edition of the Space Nuts Podcast. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts Podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.